We're based in Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite cities. You've been? Oh, many times. Wow. Many times. What do you like about and, Melbourne? Uh, um, it's sort of like the equivalent of, of our San Francisco, I guess, where it's a little more artsy and a little less businessy yeah. than Sydney and a little mm-hmm. less, you know, a, a little less uh, bogan than uh, <laughs> uh, Gold Coast and Cairns. Right. And I mean, we've been to Australia, me and my wife have been to Australia many times uh, all over the place. And then, of course, in my years with Nine Inch Nails, uh, we toured there and played big day out festivals and stuff. So we've been to been to Adelaide, Perth, Melbourne, driven along the, the whole Great Ocean Road on the south, driven from Sydney to Melbourne, driven from Sydney all the way up to Brisbane, been to Cairns, been way up to Mossman in the F&Q, and uh, haven't been to uh, Cooper Pedy yet, but <laughs> or Darwin or or Tasmania, but been there quite a bit, have a few friends there, and uh, just in general, love it. My wife is always like, when are we moving? Every time we go to Australia, she's like pulling out the real estate listings and going, look, the, with the exchange rate, this would only cost. <laughs> yeah. So, awesome. No, we, we really enjoy it there. And there's a, you know, there's a, there's definitely a vibe to the, the general Aussie mindset that is uh, refreshingly positive in some ways compared to America. Right. And maybe the grind culture that's kind of taken over America is not as much in the forefront in Australia somehow. And it just seems like people enjoy life and are pot, you know, have a more positive outlook sometimes, you know, very laid back and relaxed country. I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm like, I've been here what six, seven years. I'm a citizen, Australian citizen now. And it's, it's good. People are very kind and nice here. And I do remember once we were driving from, uh, I guess we were going from, driving from Melbourne up to Sydney and we were in like a little rented mini Cooper. And, you know, there's long stretches of that journey that you're the only people on the road. (laughs) And it was, it was getting dark and we'd passed the last uh, illuminated electric light uh, an hour or two before. (laughs) And we were driving through like a eucalyptus forest and it was fucking raining and wind crazy storm. And we came up upon a, a eucalyptus tree that had fallen and blocked the road. And this thing was enormous, you know, it was right. like five or six feet in diameter, huge tree. And we're sitting there thinking, well, geez, do we turn around? Do we even have enough gas to get back to where we were going, where we came from? And as we're sitting there puzzling this out, uh, a guy in a, you know, in a, in a Nissan patrol with all the jerry cans on the back and a roof yeah. rack and the snorkel and all the stuff, he pulls up next to us. He's like, you all right, mate? We're like, <laughs> yeah, we're just wondering, you know, what exactly we should do and he says no worries we'll have this sorted out in a second and yeah. around that time uh, uh, a great big truck an 18 wheeler type of truck came from the other side and uh, the two of them jumped out of their rigs and they had their rain gear in the back and they suited up in their yellow rain gear and of course the guy in the nissan patrol had a had a chainsaw so he gets out starts <laughs> you know immediately starts sawing this tree into pieces the dude in the 18 wheeler you know of course he had the big the big rhubar on the front. So right. he hooks chains around the chunks of tree. And within 15 minutes, they chopped this tree into pieces and dragged the pieces off to the side and cleared the road. And, you know, in a, in the States, it would be more like, 
I don't have cell service and I can't reach emergency services. And who can I file a lawsuit against yeah. for blocking my journey? You know, there's yeah. a very different vibe. And that was like yes. encapsulated the sort yeah. of can do spirit of, of yeah. Aussies. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. it's just two things that sort of um, stood out there as you were talking. I'm just delighted that you know the term bogan. Oh yeah. All right. Yeah. And and we are a very no worries um, country, <laughs> which yeah. as opposed to America, which is a lot of worries country. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so we we haven't even started officially yet, but um, we may keep some of this in because right. great story. <laughs> yeah. Great story. Yeah. Um, so before we sort of officially start, um, we'll give you a bit of a context on who we are. So Harmon here is the photographer. And I'm the writer. Um, we're both creatives. We're both creatives, yeah. And uh, we started this podcast in January, and uh, we started off on an impulse. Um, we sort of found our way of why we're doing this podcast and how we should do it along the way. We didn't wait. It was a hit-the-ground-running kind of thing, and um, we've been stacking up a couple of episodes. Well, 17 now? Yeah, nearly 17. Since yeah. January, so... Wow. Um, yeah, that's that's cool. what it is about. We're we're young, hmm. you know, um, under thirties, both of us, and uh, we like to talk to people that we can't actually hang out in a bar because we might not be actually cool enough to do that. So we <laughs> invite them to our podcast and we have a chat with them. Actually, yeah, it's so a, excellent. It's very ulterior motive because um, you know we had this opportunity to sit down with people that we wouldn't ordinarily get a chance to talk to if we didn't have a um, a podcast. An excuse. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it does give you a platform to do that, actually, to invite people and be like, okay, let's let's have a chat and see what we can learn from each other. Excellent. Awesome. Go ahead. Right. I'll get started. Welcome to another episode of Game of Life with Dan and Harmon. We're joined by a composer for both film and television, most notably the Saw franchise, a record producer, and he's worked with Nine Inch Nails, Charlie Clouser, welcome to the show today. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, first things first, you've now composed 10 um, Saw films in the last 20 years, I believe. Mm -hmm. What does that feel like? It feels like... Uh sometimes it almost feels like a high school reunion every year when uh when we're getting the band back together uh and it's you know there's a few people that have been involved uh, in all of the movies across the whole series of the franchise other people have kind of moved come in and out yeah. you know across the span of 10 movies uh there have been a few different directors some of whom have done m more than one film some of whom have rotated in for one installment and then moved on uh, but there are uh, sort of the, the the core besides just the, the actors and the cast members who have appeared in in multiple or all of the films. Uh, there's a few people like Kevin Greiter, who's the uh, director of this latest installment, um, and also had directed uh, a couple of other installments in the franchise and has edited, if not all of them, almost all of them. Uh, and so we have this kind of. Uh, there's definitely a shorthand that has developed over the years uh, where, you know, Kevin, since he's edited so many of the 
of these tricky sequences in the films, he's developed kind of a natural rhythm at, as to how he paces the scenes and how rhythmically he structures the the cuts. Um, and that makes my job a lot easier because I'm not having to fight any battles against an awkward or cumbersome edit of the picture. And mm. it's uh, so it's great to be working with people with whom you have a shorthand and a kind of shared background. And we kind of know what the destination is and it doesn't take a lot of explaining. Yeah. So you definitely um, have that creative control with those films. Oh yeah. And yeah. I mean, I've been very lucky on this one uh, on this entire franchise because uh, at this point, sort of the, the producers kind of say, okay, well, you know what to do. So do your thing, man. And there's not a lot of trial and error involved in, oh, here's what I think this piece of music should sound like. What do you guys think? And then getting back a page of notes and yeah, things right. to change. And But that means that when we are making adjustments and changes to the music, it's very much fine-tuning as opposed to completely rethinking a piece of music for a given scene. And uh, it's, it's never a complete... Uh, no hitter where I'm just yeah. lobbing balls across home plate and striking out batters one after another. But when I do need to make uh, changes and adjustments, it's we're we're focusing in on just very specific things. So that makes the whole process just that much smoother. It's not tearing, you know, it's not sawing three legs off of the stool and then having to rebuild it while you're still sitting on it. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think as a creative, you need that space to express and, you know, um, it's liberating sometimes when you don't have to work within the lines. Exactly. And there's a lot of, you know, I guess saw movies are have become their own weird little subgenre. And of course, the music kind of has too. And so not, a lot of what I wind up doing isn't maybe uh, applicable to a wider variety of projects um because there's a very sort of specific sound vocabulary and specific uh ways to approach these big elaborate violent scenes and it's usually a case of uh well last time we cranked it up to 11 let's crank it up to 12 this time and some of going to those levels of extremes isn't necessarily appropriate in anything but a saw movie but that's fine the the hello zep theme has become so iconic and i i just love it when, whenever i hear it i just sort of visualize um ticking clocks um is is that some when, when you sat down and wrote that piece of music or when you write pieces of music in general do you sort of visualize things like that Oh, very much so. And, yeah. you know, the the fact that that theme has, be, has had such a, a a long life and has become kind of a trademark of, of all of these movies uh, is kind of a surprise uh, because when we were doing the first movie, you never know if what you've done, whatever creative work you've done, you, you never know if it's going to find its audience and strike a chord with the cultural zeitgeist or whatever and 
you know when you've done good work and you think it's good, but there's a million reasons why any creative project could fail to find its audience and resonate somewhere down the road. And, uh, but, you know, James Wan and Lee Whannell, who created the franchise and James directed the, the first film, they had a real, uh, you know, these, these guys weren't flying blind by any means. They knew what the arc of the, of the movie was going to be and how the music needed to fit within that. And so there was a very conscious decision to have the score for the first film kind of start off gently and then get darker and more thematic, but then start disassembling itself as, as it progressed into the third act until by the time we're at the level of panic in that final act, the music, the, the underscore has sort of dissolved into this cacophony of banging on metal percussion and, and weird grinding and scraping sounds. And it's almost the musical element has kind of been boiled away and we're just left yeah. with this stressful soundscape. Yeah. Uh, and then it was very important uh, and it was a, a calculated plan that the the next piece of music, once Lee Wanell's character Adam starts the little tape deck and we begin that final sort of sequence that's the ending reveal montage where there's flashbacks being cut into the picture and there's a voiceover as he's listening to the tape and there's a lot of information flying at the audience during that sequence so we knew that we wanted the music to feel almost like the the lights had been switched on in the theater yeah. or something and yeah. that it was a drastic tonal shift so for that piece of music for the hello zep theme it was in a different key than any of the other pieces of music in the film and it used sounds that had had not been used anywhere else in the film so it was a real shift and like the as the film progressed, there were some sort of orchestral sounds and some string sounds, but they were very distant and washy and sort of cavernous, drowning in cavernous reverb. When we get to the Hello Zep moment, the the sounds are very, very much more dry and kind of upfront and in your face yeah. to help heighten that that sense of of urgency, you know. Yeah. And there was also a, a need to to have the underlying music within that piece be very compact and simplistic so that it wouldn't draw too much attention away from the voiceover and the flashbacks and all this other information that's flying at, at the audience. So with those parameters as a guideline, you know, having a game plan like that made it so much easier to sort of fill in the blanks yeah. because it wasn't so much staring at a blank page. It was more like staring at a page that had a list of rules predetermined. And, you know, all credit goes to, to James Wan for thinking that out and having that as a game plan going into it. And yeah. it made, made the job of actually doing the piece of music that much easier. Well, that piece of music now has become a signature for every every film going forward. I mean, I think um, sort of there were hints to it in at the end of Saw Two, but I didn't think it sort of became it became more sort of um, prevalent in 
I think the third film, like it was more mm-hmm. there, um, like it was in the first film. Um, I always sort of get excited when I start hearing that um, piece of music as well, because oh yes, this is when all the reveals start to happen. Right. And this the is, payoff. Yeah, yeah, the payoff. Yeah, like um, even with this most recent film, um, when that piece of music started to play, I was enjoying the film so much up to that point. I was thinking, oh, his music started. That that means it's going right. to end it's in a second. It's going to end. Yeah, yeah. So um, who's, I guess, idea was it to sort of continue that sort of piece of music for every film going forward was it just sort of a well it was we it's kind of become a a the <clears throat> format of all of these films has some twist ending and corresponding reveal sequence at the end and because it worked so well in the first one and with such a tonal shift from what what you were hearing up to that point you know in, in some of the various sequels that tonal shift isn't as jarring because the music immediately before that may have been big and bright and have similar feel and similar sounds and also in some spots we would do sort of fake outs where we would use some of the hello zep theme and then abruptly change it into a new sec have a new section inserted in the middle that is sort of a a misdirect where okay here's the final reveal and then oh wait where are we going now hmm but that's always been you know on the part of the producers and the writers and the directors that's always kind of uh i know i always know that that it wouldn't be a, a saw movie if it didn't have some twist ending that needed that hello zep music to kind of signal that okay now it's time to pay attention because all the confusion of the past hour and a half yeah will be revealed and it's that little jingly jangly uh it's a dulcimer sound actually that's the very first thing you hear in those hello zep pieces of music and that's sort of become the signal for okay audience members wake up and pay attention because here comes the information dump yeah it's um a lot of people um sort of, I guess, paint the brush of um, those Saw films being, um, you know, torture porn, right? But mm-hmm. I always, always get um, odd looks when I say, oh, yeah, I really enjoy those films because they're soap operas. They're police serials, which is why I enjoy them. But there's also, um, you know, ongoing um, character arcs as well, and Tobin Bell is just amazing. Um, so what I guess what is your sort of um overall feeling towards the sort of just franchise outside the music? Well, it's I'm I'm so glad that it's had such a dedicated fan base who can see beyond <clears throat> that sort of surface diagnosis of it being a oh it's just people getting their arms pulled out of the sockets by some machine. <clears throat> you know, yes, it does that, but the underlying plots are so intricate and there's so many callbacks to maybe previous movies in the franchise and characters that reappear a couple of films later and so they the writers are filling in some missing information from earlier films and kind of the arc is 
multiple films long for some of these characters. And, you know, even in Saw X, in that post credit scene, we see the reappearance of a, of a certain police detective yes. who figured very heavily into some of the films in the middle of the series. And seeing the fan reactions on, like, you know, the Saw subreddit and stuff, these, they're paying strict attention to this stuff. And they're concocting and speculating on how and why these various characters fit into the intricate timeline that's been created. And I, I have to say, I'm amazed at the skill and dexterity of the writers uh, across this whole thing, because, you know, the, the first, in the first film, that sort of ending payoff, I remember after I first saw it, I was like, well, this is a cool movie, but there's no way there could be a sequel because like they, tied it up with a nice little bow at the end of the first movie and i guess that's uh evidence why i would not make a good hollywood screenwriter because they've obviously found ways to expand the story and the characters far beyond what's encompassed in the first film and also create these longer arcs that and i don't know if they're planning this all all the way ahead of time or if they're kind of reverse engineering it after the fact, but the fact that we do see characters that reappear five movies later and fit into the, the timeline and have it all make sense is amazing to me. And I think that the fans who are deep into the franchise, they love that stuff. And, yeah. and the fact that great care is being taken to, uh, to not sort of retcon the old, you know, old modes and old scenes and ignore important points that were made as important points in an earlier film. And so that needs to be taken into strict account as they expand on these stories and the character arcs. And I'm always impressed at the intricacy of what's going on besides the trap scenes yeah. and the violence and all the mayhem. Yeah. And it originated from um, a couple of Australians as well. So I'm exactly. I take a sense of Come pride in home. that. <laughs> uh, you should. <laughs> um, so let's move away from um, the Saw franchise. Um, take us back to a young Charlie Clouser. What was <laughs> it about music that spoke to you? Did you always want to be in music? You know, or was it? Or I, was it? I think I did. And, you know, I, my parents were sort of a much older generation. They were both born in 1930. So we didn't have like rock and roll records in my house growing up. And I didn't have any older brothers that, or older cousins that would like turn you on to Led Zeppelin or whatever. In, in our house, it was, you know, my mom played piano and she would play like Scott Joplin ragtime music. And my dad listened to Dixieland jazz. And so I was exposed to music from a very young age, but um, I didn't have any kind of uh, cultural awakening until, you know, and I took uh, music lessons starting in, in first grade at the age of six. And I rotated through three or four different instruments before I settled on, on drums by the time I was probably eight years old or so. So I'm learning to play the drums, but I would play along to, you know, Dixieland jazz records and, and, and albums that I found in my dad's record collection. that would be like, you know, Broadway show tunes or whatever. And I didn't jump immediately into 
jamming along to Pink Floyd and Aerosmith or whatever. It wasn't until I was at a, you know, a yard sale or a rummage sale in our neighborhood. I must have been probably nine or 10 years old. And I remember seeing the first Led Zeppelin album. It was 25 cents at this yard sale. And, the, and I thought it was interesting because of the picture of the Hindenburg on the front. I thought, well, what could that possibly be? It's worth 25 cents of my allowance. Um, and of course, then once I heard the first Led Zeppelin record, then it was kind of all over. And I think the second, within a, a week or two, I went to another yard sale and uh, found an album uh, that was called David Live, which is David Bowie live at the Tower Theater in Philadelphia from probably 1972 or four, somewhere around there, sort of in his Thin White Duke era. And it had a lot of, I mean, it was a live album. So it's not sort of, it didn't have that studio polish of many of the Bowie albums, but it was such an invigorating performance. And again, I had no like, cultural yardstick i didn't know the context of and the background that that put david bowie in a position to have all these influences from other musical styles and mash it all up into what he was doing because his stuff is extremely influenced by all sorts of things like you know soul music and he had luther vandross singing backing vocals on young americans and that sort of thing so there was all these cultural references that he's making that I didn't have the same context or background for, but I didn't, I just liked what I was hearing and thought this is amazing. And it was, wasn't until sort of later in life that I discovered the, what came before that led to that. Same with Led Zeppelin, where there's a, it wasn't completely a bolt from the blue, like it was to my young years, because they were, they had experience in playing in, you know, Jimmy Page had been in the, the Yardbirds and everything. So there was a background there that I didn't understand or know about. But I just liked the final destination they'd arrived at. And of course, that was I was probably 10 years old when I discovered those records. And then it was then it was all over. And I started frantically buying records and playing playing drums along to anything I could get my hands on. And I didn't didn't think there or understand how there was a career at in the music industry or have any idea how any of it worked. Um, and so when I went to college, I wasn't planning on being a musician for life. I thought I would be an architect, um, but it was at college. Then I discovered that there was things called recording engineers and record producers. And I started to kind of peel back the layers and understand how these records were made and i sort of i think it was purely by uh laziness and not wanting to learn calculus and trigonometry in the the course program that would lead to it being an architect that led me down the uh led me to the dark side <laughs> was, was there anyone was was there anyone sort of helping you along the way to sort of figure out how you could forge that sort of career in music? Um, yeah, I mean, there's been so many sort of uh, influential people that let me see kind of behind the curtain. Um, you know, in when I was in college and I was studying electronic music, which in those days, this was the pre-computer era. So it was uh, I was studying electronic music in in the old school, which meant 
giant modular synthesizers where you patch all the cables together and reel-to-reel -reel tape machines and making sort of academic electronic music, not making uh, New Order Blue Monday remixes, which is what I wanted to do, but there was no like kind of college course in doing that at that time. Um, but after college, I, I it was actually a, uh, an Australian who gave me one of my first kind of breaks. Um, after college, I moved to New York City and got a job working at a music store on the legendary 48th Street, which was where all the music stores were based in those pre-internet days. And so if you wanted to learn about the new, whatever the latest drum machine or synthesizer was, you had to physically go to this street in New York City and you could bounce between eight different stores and compare all the instruments and learn about them. And I became uh, sort of the in-house computer and software guy at one of those stores. And one of my customers was an Australian record producer who sadly is dead now. His name was Cameron Allen. And he had uh, worked with Iva Davies and Ice House and had a small record label uh, in Australia called Mushroom Records. And he would come to New York uh, once or twice a year to just see what the new recording gear was and new keyboards and so forth, and maybe buy something and take back with them to, to Sydney where he lived. And after a few of these visits, we struck up a friendship because we were both into sort of semi-obscure non-mainstream music like Brian Eno and Roxy music and sort of art rock kind of stuff. And I was just grateful to have a customer that, that understood and liked the same kind of music I was getting into. And so we struck up a friendship. And after a few of these visits, he came into the store one day and he said, Oh, I I've moved to New York because I've been hired to compose the score for a TV series. And I'm going to need some help setting up a, a rig at this apartment I've rented and churning out this music on a weekly basis. And so I started going up to his place after work every day and helping him on this TV series and uh, eventually working later and later into the night and showing up to my job at the music store later and later as I was oversleeping <laughs> from a long night working with Cameron <laughs> until eventually my, my uh, boss at the music store kind of stopped me as I was walking into the shop one day and uh, said, Hey, so have you been, been working some late nights with that Australian guy? And I said, you know, I was like an hour and a half late for work. And there's like customers lined up in my little section waiting for the guy who's going to come and tell them about computer software. And my boss kind of stopped me at the door and said, Let, let's go grab breakfast next door. And I thought, Oh, this is, that's not good. And I said, so I shouldn't bother punching in on the time clock. He said, no, let, let's go have breakfast. But he very kindly said, so if you've been working with this Australian guy up at his studio. And I said, yeah, and it, it, this is great. He's got me programming drums and making sounds and mixing uh, the score for this TV series. He's doing. And my boss said, so you think that's a solid thing? Is it just a, this just a short term thing? Or is I said, no, I think this is going to go. He wants me to work with him for 26 episodes. Yeah. And my boss said, oh, look, that, that's good. And I said, so I'm I'm fired, right? And he said, yes, you're fired. <laughs> but he very kindly wanted yeah. to check and make sure that uh, that I had a solid thing to fall yeah. into. Yeah. And Cameron was was great. He was the we worked together in New York for a couple of years. And then he came to Los Angeles to score some other TV projects. And he brought me out here and parked me in a cheap motel with a yeah. cheap rental car. And uh, we were off and running. And it was great because I was able to see the mechanics of how the 
sausage gets made yeah. without having without having any reputation or experience and without having it be my name at risk it was his responsibility and i was yeah. one of the facilitators so it was a great i learned later that that's kind of had what the career path is for most creatives in this kind of world that they'd work as an assistant or an intern to yeah. an established composer at the time i had no idea that's how it worked but that was the path that i took and it's all thanks to an Aussie from Sydney. Yeah. You just, you sort of just never know the people you'll meet that end up giving you a foot in the door. Exactly. Um, but it's a lot, there's a lot of luck involved as well, but um, you have to be sort of, I guess, proactive as well. Yeah. And, you know, that calls to mind something my, as corny as it sounds, something my grandmother used to say. And she said, wow. She used to say, opportunity may knock, but you need to be fully dressed when you answer the door. Yeah. So I guess that means you sort of need to be in a position to uh, to take advantage of those opportunities as they occur. And although a big part of, of all of the working relationships I've had, whether it's working with bands or being in bands or working with directors on TV and film, a lot of it comes down to communication skills. And, you know, the, the broader description of that is, oh, it's all about personality and finding people that you can vibe with or whatever. But it in with getting more specific about it, it's about being able to communicate ideas about these abstract things, these creative projects we're working on, yeah. whether it's photography or painting or poetry yeah. or whatever, but being able to step back from your little hurricane of ideas in your mind and be able to describe to a civilian quote unquote somebody who may not share that same vocabulary and creative influence yeah. background and being able to describe they may say oh uh we have this piece and th this is a, a real world example from my tv scoring career there was a scene that uh was a very sentimental and touching scene and they had tried a a few different pieces of music that they had lifted from other films and TVs and inserted into the scene. And, and the, the director was saying, you know, none of these seem, they, they, it's, they're all sentimental and warm pieces of music, but they just doesn't have the right feel that we're going for. And we're, we're puzzled as to why none of these things have worked. We've tried, uh, you know, a half dozen different pieces of music and they're all good, but not right. And I said, well, play me a couple. And they, played me their favorite two pieces of music against the the scene and right away luckily it came to me right away i said well it sounds like sounds like they're going to hop in bed together um sounds like they're about to have sex because the pieces of music they had chosen were sort of uh romantic not they weren't like you know waka 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 porno music but they were yeah. romantic and warm but in a way that suggested romantic love and as it transpired the scene was about uh, a brother and sister who are saying goodbye for the last time like they're never going to see each other again so it needed to be warm but it couldn't suggest romance and to me when i heard the pieces of music they had chosen it smacked of that and i said it needs to be warm but also like poignant and kind of tragic but not heavy and it sounds like they're about to jump in the sack together and that's not right and the directors and the producers looked at each other like, oh, my God, yeah, 
that that is it. Yeah. So it was about being able to. And then, of course, I went home and thought, oh, what have I promised these people I'm going to do? Now I have to actually live up to these grand (laughs) schemes. But being able to communicate about what I was thinking and what the scene and the music were making me feel, that helped more so than any actual musical ability to, to write the desired piece of music. Of course, that wound up being, you know, a bit of a struggle as I plonked away at the keyboard. But having that communication ability uh, and I've seen this in other people's creative careers, whether they're writers or or filmmakers, whatever, that's a critical skill that all of a sudden kicks down more doors than your raw talent may kick down. If that makes sense. Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, That's that's very interesting because um, to be able to tell that and to be able to differentiate in what kind of sense music gives you, hmm. you you require a lot of skills. Similar thing I do in photography. I can tell that this picture is good and this picture is not. So you need to know a lot. You need to know what you're doing. You need to know your shit. So how did you develop that skill? How is it? Is it an emotional thing or is it like a learning curve that you had to do over the, your course of career? I think it's, I mean, obviously, since I'm so interested and attracted to music, and when I find a song I love, I'll listen to it a thousand times in a row and never get tired. Uh, same with movies that, you know, drives my wife crazy that whenever, you know, if, if I'm flipping through the channels on HBO and Shawshank Redemption or Seven or Ronin, any of these films that I love are on, I'll watch it again. She's like, you just watched that three days ago from beginning to end aren't you how many times can you watch ronin <laughs> and i would say i can watch it an infinite number of times so i have a natural tendency to to keep wanting to view or listen to work that i like and try to um, peel back more layers maybe i'll see or hear something that i did, didn't before but so that's kind of at least i'm never bored or getting fatigued with endless rewatching, re-listening. But at the same time, you know, there was certainly years spent in college hanging around with my buddies and smoking joints late into the night and endlessly listening to whatever 12-inch import uh, remix album they had just brought back from the record store and trying to figure out, you know, how did they get that cool reverb on the snare? That's so cool. And so talking with other buddies who are not you're not working on a project necessarily you're not like struggling against a deadline or against a a creative goal you're just listening to records and enjoying them or watching movies and enjoying them and talking about how cool is it the way they showed this scene from this angle and you never really see what the other guys are doing but then later in the film they have a flashback and now you see it from the other viewpoint and like wow that I'm going to remember that trick if I'm ever a filmmaker, you know? So being curious and interested in how the trickery of writing and production and making a record or a film, how that trickery achieves a certain result on the victim, the viewer. Uh, I've always been curious about that. And I love when it works well, you know, it's like that big payoff scene in the first saw movie where 
you know, the body rises from the floor and you're like, holy crap, I can't believe, what a, an amazing s- cinematography trick that was. They totally fooled me. And it has such a great impact. And not that I'll ever be able to use this 90% of these tricks that I'm trying to unravel watching my favorite films, whatever, but having a natural curiosity towards that and I'm sure it's the same with writers and photographers. They see work that they like and they want to unravel and, and yeah. figure out how that result was created. They say it had an effect on me. How can I have that effect on others yeah. who view whatever work I'm doing? So, Would you say you're in a um, constant state of creating? Um, yeah, because even you know, there's a lot of time spent when I'm not quote working on a project unquote, but I'm always, you know, my, my workspace is here at my house. And so I naturally just come kind of come in here every day and I might be doing what I call is sharpening the knives, you know, like a, a chef isn't always cooking. They might have to sharpen all their knives and put them in a nice row so that when the dinner rush hits, they can grab them and go and not be frustrated that their tools aren't in place. So I do spend a lot of time just finding and working with new weird instruments like this junk that's behind me and making recordings of interesting sounds and finding ways to process sounds. And because of my natural curiosity and my joy at hearing a sound i've never heard before and thinking oh that's the coolest thing ever i'm going to record a whole bunch of versions of that so that when i'm in a panic trying to finish a saw movie or whatever against the deadline i'll have all these great sounds that i've never used before and that no one has ever heard before and that might just save my butt when we get to that moment of panic against the deadline so even if and i derive interest and joy from something as mundane as just creating and editing a bunch of new sounds completely apart from writing any music that that they may or may not be used in and that's kind of fortunate because there's a a a lot of the sounds that i would make don't ever get used so it would start to feel like wasted time if i weren't naturally interested and enjoying the process do, do, do you think you'd ever be able to sort of switch off that that part of your brain? <laughs> I've tried. I've tried. <laughs> Believe me, I've tried. But I, it, it's I'm always curious about sound and music, wherever it hits me from. And you know, I now with iPhones and portable electronics we can record if we hear an interesting sound out in the out in the world we can instantly record it and bring it home and use it for something later back in the day when i was first starting out i would always carry around a little cassette walkman that had microphones on it so that if i heard you know if i heard a a construction site where they had some big machine going oh that's got a great rhythm to it and it sounds like this industrial drum kit or something I could record it and then bring it home and and sample it and manipulate the audio. So I'm kind of always, I always have my antenna up, which kind of means that sometimes if I'm on vacation, 
I'll be trying to go somewhere where there's no interesting sound <laughs> so that I don't get distracted from relaxing. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of music do you enjoy apart from what you create? I mean, I, I still, and I've, I've read a piece by a journalist a while back who was speculating that the, the music that you listen, you know, what, I think it was an answer to a question of why do so many middle-aged dads still listen to the same ACDC records from when they were in high school. And the, the philosophical answer behind that this journalist was proposing was, well, when the, the, the soil is fertile and it is first planted, whatever grows then is kind of the crop that that's why dad still listens to ACDC back in black 40 years right. later. And so I think that, and I've noticed, in myself that you know i still go back and listen to the records that amazed me because i'd never heard anything like that before you know public image limited killing joke gang of four pink floyd Kraftwerk, aerosmith even and part of it is because it made an impact on me at the time but then part of it is also like boy those guys just nailed it and nobody's ever come close since and Again, a, a testament to the enduring quality of uh, of Akadaka that that you you can you put on back in black and no one has ever captured that particular flavor of lightning in that particular flavor of bottle, yeah. and many have tried. On the flip side, there's an endless crop of new music and new influences to to, to inspire, and but that sort of the range of stuff that I focus on now is perhaps narrower. Like I'm not listening to who's the new ACDC or Aerosmith. Like I love old Aerosmith records. I love old ACDC records, but I'm not like out there shopping for 10 more of bands like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm tend to now be more interested in the artists that have taken, uh, that have, may have a similar set of influences as a starting point but they've taken it to unbelievable extremes um and that i've followed them throughout that that path and you know whether it's uh whether it's u2 or nine inch nails or bands like ministry who have i've been able to track their the way their music has changed over so many decades and I understand the the path that they followed and followed them through it. And so that kind of means that their whatever their new new album is may make more sense or be more have more interesting value to me than to a listener who is just hearing who doesn't know the whole backstory, you know. Right. right. Although I am also always interested in uh film scores that that let me hear sounds and approaches that I haven't heard before or on the, on the flip side, when they absolutely nail it with a very minimalist and, and subtle kind of approach. And that's partly because in, in a lot of the projects I do, I'm not taking a minimalist approach and I'm, you know, having this maximalist approach with tons of sounds flying at you. And so when someone does it really well with a very small scope, right. then that's equally impressive or even more impressive to me. I think that's 
It's very funny that you just talked about ACDC and how they've captured that lightning in a bottle because it's a very mystical reason. Um, to me, that's... I want to ask you, I want to know your thoughts on what's... What do you think about talent versus practice? Like people well, are some, you know? Yeah. I mean, I... And that there's one phrase that always sticks in the back of my head that's, and I can't remember who said it or where it came from, but it's talking about uh, uh, his his reach exceeded his grasp. In other words, he had an idea to do something, but didn't have the ability to make it occur right. with the instrument or the whatever scope of creative pursuit they're in. And in the case of, uh, a lot of records the in the sort of pre-computer era the gra the reach couldn't exceed the grasp by very much because they had to actually be able to play the you know acdc probably sounded basically like that in the room and i've seen them there's many concert videos and i've seen them play and it basically sounds like that like they just do that and it's natural for them and it's not some technological hurdle that they've conquered and it's not studio trickery i on the other hand uh rely on a lot of studio trickery and a lot of uh, uh ways to let my even though my reach exceeds my grasp i can use uh technology to help me bring the thing i'm reaching Close for closer yeah yeah absolutely it is it hard to um, maintain a good reputation in the business? Sorry, I lost you there for a second because oh, Siri just... jumped up on my freaking screen. Okay, what was that? Oh, is it <clears throat> is it hard to maintain a good reputation within the business? Is it is there a <laughs> lot of pressure um, to deliver? Um. Yes. And these are, you know, it's funny because even though I had a, a, a few years of working with Cameron Allen, that film composer and record producer that kind of got me started there, it was, you know, he was very sort of casual. It wasn't a, a grind environment. Um, he was the kind of guy who would work on the music for a TV series for a few months, and then he might go traveling with his wife and produce a, a, a low budget documentary about physicists or something. So he was sort of a, a, a Renaissance man. Um, but he wasn't, he was very much not in that sort of grind, grind, grind Hollywood entertainment industry culture. So our relationship was maybe not like the conventional sort of uh, mentor mentee relationship, but he did impart a few kind of pearls of wisdom, which have stuck with me. And the, they've stuck with me partly because I thought everybody did it this way. And it, I don't hear these, this advice being given that frequently. And, you know, one piece of advice was that, um, I think it was basically three maxims that, that he imparted to me. And one of them was that uh, you, you must never be late. And there's no there's zero tolerance for the the dog ate my homework kind of story. Yeah. And that if you're struggling to finish a, a creative work, like a piece of music for a, a scene, a tricky scene in the movie, and you're just, you've run out of time, it needs to be delivered tomorrow, or they're going to have a 
an explosion. Uh, and the, the best path forward, if you've, there simply isn't time to add all the individual elements to this piece of music you're hearing in your mind, take the few elements that do, that you do have time to do and get them to a point of completion and then commit to that stripped down thing that is all you have time to deliver. Go into that meeting on the next day with that piece of music and never let it be thought or suggested that, well, I was going to do this, this, and this, but I just kind of ran out of time. Go into that meeting and say, I know this piece of music only has a piano and two notes of strings and one little drum thump. And that's exactly what I intended from the start. And that's a hundred percent what I intended to do from the start. So, and never, of course, one must in the sort of film and TV and production <clears throat> music is fairly down, far down the list of priorities. So if you have, if you're ever going to be late and be like, Oh, I, I'm going to need another week to finish the music, then basically you'll never work again in this town. Just one must never be late. But also if one is struggling with an idea, as I just described before, find a way to make that embody what you did intend, even if it's not what all that you had hoped for and all your grand plans have fallen apart because you ran out of time. Yeah. Uh, and that was, as it turns out, that was pretty sage advice from a wise Aussie because it's, <laughs> I've been in that situation and it yeah. has helped a few times because then you're not struggling against the fear of looking bad or looking like you half-assed it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. See, I've got a question. Um, talk to us about, because life is peaks and troughs. And game, you know, name of the show is Game of Life. So talk to us about a, a difficult phase in your life, in your career, and how did you manage it and what pulled you through? Um, there have been a few junctures when uh, I didn't know what was going to come next, but more tragically, that thing that I had put so much stake and stock in had kind of not worked out and was falling apart. And I was going to be, I, I was faced with the choice of either, you know, clinging to a sinking life raft or just swimming away and trying to make it to shore. And uh, in those kind of moments fortunately i have a natural interest at even if i'm not being paid to do this stuff i'll sit and fiddle with sounds and so so i have that to kind of fall back on but in those kind of critical sort of junctures and a, a any career as a creative is going to be full of uh disappointment <laughs> and wild <laughs> moments of wild thrilling success that exceeds your wildest dreams and also moments where you've thought this was going to be the, the thing. And it turns out it's all going pear shaped. Um, and in those kind of moments, it, I, I always remind myself, and I don't think this is something that Cameron talked to me. I may have actually come up with this theorem uh, on my own, but, and I've, I've seen this, played out with other creatives whether they're musicians or or writers or photographers whatever they may be but you know that old saying of uh, if you love what you do you'll never work a day in your life well there's kind of a dark side to that too because if you're sort of a freelancer or self-employed or you're finding your own path 
then that means you never have a day off because you could always be working, honing yeah. your skills and broadening your influence and so forth. So, and that doesn't, that hasn't started to bother me yet. It may at some point, but the, 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 the theorem or axiom that falls on the back of all of those theories that is that if you um, have made your creative pursuit your entire life and and you've you sacrificed this this and this you say i'm i'm going to live in a crappy apartment because it's in the city where my opportunities lie or i'm you know you make whatever sacrifices in life to maximize the possibilities of your living your dream whatever that may be then you run the risk and for some it's the risk is inconsequential but you run the risk of now your creative pursuit owes you right and you have sac in the back of your mind it may not be in a, a conscious reasoning process but you may somewhere subtly in your emotional mind be thinking i've sacrificed so much for to become a musician and it's not paying me back and now i hate music or now i you know my creative thing for which i have shed so much blood and wasted so much time and energy and I, I could be living happily working in a warehouse and have a nice small house out in the sticks with two kids and two dogs and i gave all that up so that i could do this and it's not working out and now and it's it's rare when someone can recognize that and vocalize it and understand that that's what subtly might be happening in the back of their mind and now they may develop frustration and hatred and want to take revenge on their what was formerly their creative dream that they wanted to pursue because it didn't pay them back for all the sacrifice and so i'm always cognizant of that that it's not it's not the music's fault that you know it doesn't it doesn't know it doesn't <laughs> owe you so for anybody in a creative pursuit i always try to describe what i've just said in hopes that they won't ever want to seek vengeance against that which they have sacrificed so much for yeah and that you know a, a lot of times it look when you're composing music for movies and tv uh you have to be ready to take any piece of music that you may have sweated on for three days and you've you think it's as the perfect thing and the director might go eh, i'm not feeling it let's try something else so you always have to be ready to discard something or push it off to the side yes. and that will harden your shell a little bit yeah. in a kind of in a good way but that kind of being able to do that ties into uh not wanting to feel like your music or your creative pursuit owes you a payback yeah um, i'm lucky that i just enjoy doing it i'm even more lucky that i've been able to make a living doing it yeah but if you don't just enjoy it anyway then it, there is that danger that you'll want to take revenge on your on what was supposed to make you happy you know yeah so sometimes it's um good to have those sort of people in your life as well like that story you told about that boss taking you aside and you know politely yeah. firing you that would have um given you a confidence booster in a way to say well yeah 
the boss who's actually firing me is saying, no, you should actually go and pursue this, this thing properly. Yeah. And it was well known and well established that everybody working at the <clears throat> freaking music store on 48th street yeah. was really there in hopes that they would sell a keyboard to Stevie wonder. Yeah. And then Stevie wonder would say, Hey, you want to come on tour with me? Like that was, it was pretty well known that that was what we're all, we didn't set out to work in the music store for life. You yeah. know, we wanted to be at the center of the action in hopes that we'd make those connections. And that boss who fired me, I am still friends with him to this day. And yeah. we still, he's moved through different careers in the, uh, in the manufacturing side of musical technology and we've remained friends. And uh, it, so it was having those kind of people who are not, who are on your side, even if technically they shouldn't be. Yeah. Is invaluable, yes. you know? Yes. Um, man, this has been, this has been amazing. We'll, we'll wrap up in a, in a second. Thank you so much for doing this today. Sure. Very generous of your time. Um, what, this is a question that Harmon likes asking all the time. And it's a good question. Um, <laughs> what, what would you tell your younger self? Um, first, I'd say, don't worry, it'll be fine. <laughs> then I would also, uh, I'd advise myself to, to be as open as possible to opportunities that may not be exactly what you want. Um, because a strong creative uh, desire or urge or, you know, the, the, the need to create a certain type of result with whatever creative pursuit you're doing is going to eventually shoulder and push its way to the front. And you may, you know, for, let's say I'm a, a, an, a you know, for a while, I paid the bills when I first arrived in LA by going around and programming drums for really corny pop songs. I'd show up with my drum machines in the trunk of my car and do these recording sessions for music that I had no interest in pursuing in the greater sense. But the, the learning how to use my skills and my instincts and talents to help someone else achieve a goal that wasn't had nothing really to do with my goals, but that was an extra, it was very much uh, building muscles. And this is something that, you know, I went to this freaky liberal arts college where you didn't have to take classes if you didn't want to, and you didn't get grades, you got evaluations. And it was very, you know, very ultra liberal art, almost hippie type college. But the one thing that they stressed was that you're not here to learn facts. Um, to memorize the Pythagorean theorem or whatever you're and okay that made sense then they said you're you're here to learn modes of inquiry and ways to discern what the question is and a path toward answering it whatever that may be and I thought okay these are those are great you know sales pitches or whatever and it wasn't until I was at that school for a semester or two that one of my professors said you know it later in life, you may wind up being a, a, a bulldozer driver, or you may wind up being an architect. But in either of those pursuits, you're going to need to be taught something after you leave school. So you're not here to memorize how to drive a bulldozer or how to calculate the stress on a 
beam of a house or whatever. You're just here to learn a bunch of stuff that you're quickly going to forget so that you learn the process of learning and strengthen that muscle that, the, well, this one, and, and that later in life, if you get hired to be a bulldozer driver, they're going to need to show you how to operate the new Caterpillar Model 750 Ultra Bulldozer. And they are going to, you're going to need to memorize a bunch of stuff quickly and assimilate it and use it. And the whole point of college, and this is surprising to hear a college professor tell me this, he's like, he said, look, you, none, nothing you learn here may actually be of any use. This is four years of you going to the gym every day, the mental gym, and just learning how to, you know, operate your muscles so that later when you need them, you can use them. And I, so I would tell my younger self that little speech, but earlier instead of halfway <laughs> through college, because it would have been great to know that in like high school biology class that you don't have to memorize the name of the xylem and the phloem and the membrane and all that stuff. This is just a case of learning how to learn stuff. And maybe along the way, some of it will strike your interest and you'll think, wow, I really, I think I might become a biologist because this is all very interesting to me. And it's sort of like, it was also described to me at one point is that, you know, high school and college is like a salad bar where you walk down the salad bar and you go, oh, I like this kind of lettuce. Let me. Oh, I don't like carrots. Oh, I don't like corn. And you're picking some things to put on your plate, which you won't eat until later. So I, I kind of wish I'd known some of that stuff when I was still in high school, because that might have it, it, at times schooling can seem like tedium. You're thinking, why am I being forced to memorize all this, this math theorems and stuff? But it's, you know, again, it's part one is it's limbering the muscles. And part two is maybe you'll find something that really does intrigue you and pulls you in a certain direction. And uh, the younger, the yeah. younger you are, when you figure that out, the better. Yeah. I, right. I love that. I wish I told myself that. <laughs> <laughs> as it's, soon as I invent a time machine, we'll all go back in time and we'll tell our younger selves yeah, that. Yes. Um, it's, it's funny that you would go back and provide your younger self perspective because that's essentially what we're doing here as well. And I say that to Dan, we're just stealing perspective. And it's a, it's a really uh, uh, nice question to end. But as something popped up while you were sharing your answer with us. Um, how do you differentiate what you want to create as a creative versus what the quote-unquote market wants or what hmm. you know, your employer might want from you? Um. The, I, I wish I was better at that because I, I know that I wind up just doing what I wanted to do anyway. Exactly. And, <laughs> I'm not. Yes. Because yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then trying to find a way to mitigate the damage, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, and always striking, you know, some, I think because I wasn't uh, rigorously trained in like music theory and orchestration and, and all that kind of the, the technical skills behind writing music for mm -hmm. films or whatever. And as and I realized as I meet other contemporaries that, that do similar things um, that if they do have those abilities, there is the danger that they will be called upon to expertly execute mundane results or non groundbreaking 
results. And I know some musicians who are, they can sit down behind the computer with a sample libraries of orchestral sounds, and they can create a convincing replica of symphonic music. And it sounds technically perfect and it's using sophisticated harmonies and all this and it's completely mundane and boring and you've heard it a hundred times before and sometimes i'm grateful that i uh was exceedingly lazy and did not want to learn all that stuff because that means that the results that i wind up with are don't necessarily conform to the established convention but are also they also feel like a success of discovery that when I'm finished a piece of music, um, I'm often thinking, wow, I learned this, this and this, and I figured out how to do this and this because I wasn't going into it with all this knowledge. You're going, OK, I'm just going to use these type of harmonies that I learned in school and I'm going to use this type of have the woodwinds mm -hmm. play along with the brass like I learned in school. But I'm sort of banging my head against it trying to figure out a path and that winds up obviously at some points it becomes a struggle because i'm trying to achieve a desired goal from the director of the film or whatever without being fully armed with the ammunition to expertly execute it but that kind of prevents the whole process from feeling mundane or repetitive or boring because you know and this is an analogy i've made a few times before in other interviews and stuff and i don't know how i thought of this one but it's like sometimes you feel like the sherpa leading the mountain climber to the top of everest and the sherpa knows every route up to the summit he knows how many hours it's going to take to get to base camp two and from base camp two to base camp three. He knows that on a cloudy day, you don't want to take the south route. You want to take the north route, whatever. And for him, it's just another day at the office. But for the mountain climber, this is they've been saving up their whole life for this trip. They have been training for this their whole life. This is every step is a triumph and a new horizon of adventure and you know, the Sherpa has been up and down Everest 30 times and the mountain climber, this is the first and maybe the only time they'll climb that mountain. And so I always want to feel more like the mountain climber and less like the Sherpa. And I know it may be dangerous to say, but so in some cases, it's good to not know the established route because that makes the process always enjoyable. That mountain climber might climb Everest this year and next year they climb K2 or some other mountain. And it's always going to be some dramatic triumph for them in a way that it might not be for the, the Sherpa. It's fascinating what you said, because that's all you have as a creative fucking bringing out magic from thin air. <laughs> that's all you have as a creative. Be authentic and not be, have that cookie cutter data mindset. So mm -hmm. again, Thank you so much for doing this, man. Yeah. Oh, hey, it's my this. pleasure. Feel free to plug anything um, that you have out there. Um, let's see. What am I doing now? Um, <clears throat> all I'm doing now is I'm going to help the band Legendary Industrial Thrash Metal Rockers Ministry. I'm helping them with their score for a documentary that is 
the back what okay the the movie that just came out recently uh killers of the flower moon scorsese's oh. latest oh, movie yeah. yep, yep, about yep. the osage indians and yep. the white man coming in and stealing all their oil money and these horrible murders and this insane but true story yeah al jorgensen from ministry is friends with um and working with a documentarian greg palace who is a legendary muckraking journalist who uncovers notorious evils uh, in corporate corruption and so forth. And he has a documentary film about what the real world story of what happened after Killers of the Flower Moon, true story. And they are, I've seen just a chunk of this documentary, but it proves to be fascinating. And weirdly, the score, the music will be done by uh, Al Jorgensen and uh, from ministry, who's the leader of ministry, and John Bechtel, aka JB, who is the keyboard player in ministry, and coincidentally, or maybe not so coincidentally, is someone I've known since college. And we also worked together at that music store in Manhattan and were roommates back in New York in the 80s and so on. The two of them are working on the underscore for this documentary. I'm going to help add elements to it and help it help complete it. And uh, hopefully that documentary will be out in a couple of months, uh, just after the new year. And it should provide another layer of, of discovery to the unbelievable but true story behind Killers of the Flower Moon. I, just one weird request. I started walking <laughs> backwards into music taste. Just started listening, Neil Young, Johnny Cash. Please, again, I'm 25. Mm -hmm. I'm very young. I was born in 97. There's time. The, yeah. Exactly, right? So the music I started listening was Akon and Eminem. And um, what would, can you recommend one or two song composers that you think that kids nowadays are like missing out? Like, this is gold. Like, I, of course, I am, I'm in Australia. Listen to Agadeka. I get it. <laughs> but any weird recommendation to us and the audience? You know, uh, some of the audience will say, what are you recommending that old crap for? But <laughs> um, uh, the post-punk era, right after the kind of punk revolution and the shock of that started to dissolve, the most obvious post-punk artist was uh, Joy Division and then New Order. But in that same time frame, there was just so much change and experimentation, some of which worked and some of which didn't. But the stuff that worked and some of these artists are still producing valuable and viable music. Some of them, perhaps their first two albums were amazing. And since then it's kind of been downhill, but uh, I always recommend, I still listen to love and always recommend uh, gang of four, which was sort of punk funk that is still unique and jagged in a interesting and weird way with very political lyrics uh, the band Killing Joke, who are still legendary and is some of the most, because of the tonality of Jazz Coleman's voice, he's the singer, uh, and the darkness of their guitar parts was at times some of the most terrifying and heavy music, even when it wasn't really all that heavy, but just the end result was scary. And they've been through, they're still operational and are still amazing. Um, and uh, 
I did. I remember having a long discussion with someone once who was a Beatles fanatic, and I confessed that I had never owned a Beatles record and that the Beatles never uh, resonated with me in any way. And I just, I, it just kind of, the record would play and then it would end. And I think, great. And I never was able to have it crawl inside my emotional psyche. They said, well, what were you listening when the Beatles were big? Like, who can you put on their level? And I said, the Beach Boys. They said, what, you mean like, surfing usa like that was like candy store music i said well there's there actually is a deeper level to that and i didn't i always loved the beach boys when i was a kid and i didn't understand until years later after you know famously brian wilson went through immense psychological trauma both early in life and then later massive drug addiction struggles and mental health struggles and everything and you would never think of it that the Beach Boys are the most damaged and destructive drug psychotic mayhem band of all time. Like the the levels of insanity that their story has encompassed is ridiculous. And it doesn't always come to the surface in their music. Uh, in But even in the sort of the the well-known songs like good vibrations and the, the pet sounds album and that sort of stuff even in the the candy store kind of harmony pop songs you know like god only knows or or that sort of thing and there's i realize now that what i was attracted to and what i was hearing is that brian wilson was struggling and trying to make happy music but some inner demon was preventing it from being completely sunshiny. And that the, it was, I realized now that I was hearing something in the, the vocal harmonies and the way they were put together and the chord changes. There was, I, I, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it felt like he was desperately trying to write happy music. And, but it always came out a little bit dented somehow. And it's more evident in later records that weren't as popular with songs like Little Bird and Till I Die and things like that, which if you read the lyrics, you're like, this is freaking tragic stuff, man. These people are, uh, they're ready to put a gun to their head. But somehow it was tempered with this sort of shiny songwriting skill. And so I always have loved the Beach Boys and I recommend reading biographies about them and listening to the less popular albums in the middle of their career, because there is a weird darkness and a weird struggle kind of right beneath the surface. And in that discussion I was having with someone about the Beatles, I was like, and I never got that from the Beatles. It always felt like the emotions were correctly and succinctly stated and they were right on the surface and easy to understand and required no further digging or investigation on my part. Whereas the Beach Boys, I was always like listening to it and going, oh my God, what have these poor people been through to get them to this hey, spot? Exactly. And you yeah. never suspect it, but there's a, there is a, a lot of, there's a lot of fun Beach Boys music, but there's also a lot of darkness just under the surface yes. and it's, it bears further investigation. <laughs> wow. <laughs> awesome. Thank, thank you so much for, for doing this. It's been incredible. My pleasure. I love these kind of discussions that aren't yeah. just about uh, what synthesizer did you use on that song? And, you know, <laughs> but it, it, it's great the way you, the questions you came up with and the way you format the discussion about yeah. the broader scope of creative pursuits, because yeah. that's the advice that I wish, I wish I had had this podcast to listen to when I was 
just starting out. It would have been super helpful. Thank you. And there's just something about you. Your energy is incredible energy as well, which I just love. <laughs> well, I hope I hope that some of it rubs off on all the creatives that yeah. are listening. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Again. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Absolutely. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Bye.